0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage. Written and narrated by pastor and best selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold.
1: Fellas, I'm ready to get up and do my thing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I want to get into it, man, you know. Uh-huh. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Uh-huh. Can I count it off? Uh-huh. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square.
0: This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, brought to you by the AM campaign. We're here. It's another week. Uh, Happy uh, belated fourth. To all of you, it's it's good to be uh, with you all, and good to be with you, Justin. You have a good fourth.
1: I had an excellent Fourth of July. Um, I, as always, we're dealing with the dilemma of Fourth of July for for African Americans, but I think most of us make the best out of it. Uh, we got a chance to hang out with some friends. Uh, so, and, and I'm really big. I'm going to be honest with you, man. I'm really big when it comes to uh, fireworks. I love fireworks. Yeah. My sons love fireworks, and so we uh, we did it up, had a good time, and. Had some good conversations. I'll get into a few of those uh, uh, in a few. Yeah, I
0: think even on the podcast last year, we talked about the boys having fun with sparklers and, and doing, doing that up. So I'm glad to see the tradition yeah. continues. It uh,
1: continues, man. We also got a chance to see Boys to Men in concert. So that was good. (laughs) We we were in the rain. I mean, we were in like a torrential downpour, but we toughed it out and uh, got to see a group and they did a wonderful job.
0: Oh, that's so great. That's so great. Hope you had a blast. I may try and work in a few Boys and Men references as we go through the show. All right. Well, before the water runs dry, let's get to <laughs> <laughs> let's let's get yeah. to what we have to get to. Uh, <laughs> all right, it, it's been a busy week. We took off for uh, last week, given the holiday. You know, the debates took place. We had a big vote on immigration funding for the border, over four billion dollars. Uh, there was a lot of sort of disagreement within. Not just the party, but between the House and the Senate. There, there seemed to have been a miscommunication between Speaker Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer about what they were willing to accept. And so that kind of continued to spill over into the weekend with a Marine Dowd column, where Marine uh, Dowd, the, the New York Times columnist, quoted. Nancy Pelosi, referring to the four new freshman liberal women in the House, AOC, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna Presley, who voted against the border funding bill that Speaker Pelosi supported. Pelosi said, all these people have their public whatever and their Twitter world, but they didn't have any following. They're four people, and that's how many votes they got. And so this AOC has already sort of punched back saying that she didn't believe it was a good idea for Dems to, quote, blindly trust the Trump men when so many kids have died in their custody. It's a huge mistake. At some level, Speaker Pelosi's right. They have four votes. They couldn't have stopped the funding bill. They had no viable pathway to getting this border funding that was essential for the care of the kids that they were all worried about and concerned about. What it seems like to me these four wanted to do, and and those who voted against the spending bill, and, and not many did, at least the perception would have been, if they had gotten their way, would have been that Democrats were just as willing to use these kids as political pawns as Republicans. It would have been very easy for Trump to say from this point forward, any time that any story came out of these detention facilities, now it wouldn't have been correct. There's other things that he could have done, but he would have been able to say, uh, look, I I would love to help these kids, but Democrats won't put this funding through because they want to close down ICE and they want to put forward... Uh, undue restrictions on how Department of Homeland Security and, and, and ICE and Border Patrol handle things. I don't see a viable pathway here. Now, there's a political question, Justin, of whether Speaker Pelosi should continue firing shots. But I think she's worried that going into an election this AOC and this cadre uh, is going to define the Democratic Party in a way that's going to cost them seats and potentially cost the White House in 2020. J- Justin, what do you think?
1: Yeah, to answer your, your last question, I think there's definitely a method to what Pelosi's doing. Uh, there's a reason that she wants to scold them, so to speak, publicly, uh, right? Because it's like, hey, when you lose, we're not going to keep this a secret. I want people to know what the issue was. So if you're going to keep giving me a headache, you know, you're going to pay for it. And so let me start by saying this. You know, we've talked about this humanitarian crisis at the U.S.-Mexican border before. We know that families are being separated. Children are suffering in miserable conditions, and it's altogether just deplorable. Again, I place the majority of the blame on the Trump administration. I'm not one who believes that those detention centers have ever been or will ever be a great place for kids. But I have little reason to believe that this administration has been making best efforts to fix the issue. Uh, And that's my main problem. Now, when it comes to the squad, who is this group of four fairly far left uh, Democrats who are really making a splash, I want to start by saying this, I, I respect people who are willing to rock the boat when necessary, who who aren't just going to say, hey, let me just fall in line just because somebody else told me to do or just because the authority or the establishment has told me to fall in line. I think things never change when you take that position. Uh, I think the squad has an opportunity to have a very serious impact on Congress and the, and the nation for the foreseeable future. I think they're energetic, uh, they're intelligent, obviously social media savvy. And from what I can tell, You know, many of the presidential candidates seem to be trying to fit within their mold policy wise. So there is something there. But practically speaking, when it comes to X's and O's, there are 235 Democrats in the House. And if you can't get even hardly a fraction of that vote on a key issue, you might have to reevaluate how much weight you actually have to throw around. Uh, And so what I'm saying is I think Pelosi actually has a point given the reality of the moment with Trump as president, with the Senate being run by Republicans and the back and forth that she apparently had with Schumer. The best thing for the suffering people at the border was to pass this funding bill and to maintain pressure on the administration in every way possible. Now, I think it's almost odd that you see Nancy Pelosi being the kind of moderate gatekeeper, right, making making sure every, everybody kind of stays in line in that regard. But but that's where we are right now. And one of my problems with the squad, uh, with the potential that they, they may have, is that it's this Twitter politics that I talk so much about. And, and it's something that Nancy Pelosi was pointing out. Twitter is not an accurate sample of the American people's political opinions. Twitter folks like the I better get my way every I better get everything I want or I'll take my ball and go home mentality. Folks on Twitter like that. American voters not so much. And this is the trouble I think this group runs into is that they come from very progressive districts that just don't represent the majority of the nation. And if the Democrats take the posture that's being taken by these four, they could run into a lot of problems. I saw an interview that was problematic to me where Rashida Tlaib was on, I think it was this week. And when she got called out for voting against the border funding bill and only getting you know, a few votes, she said her response to this reasonable critique was something about her being a w- about this group being women of color and their voices being needed. Now, it's true that the voices of women of, co- of color are needed, but most of the women of color in Congress, if I'm not mistaken, voted for this bill. And I'm convinced that most of them are capable of coming up with a better response to a legitimate critique than that. Right. That wasn't a substantive defense. The focus on identity when you're being asked a legitimate question is a cop out. Martin Luther King Jr. didn't do that. Fannie Lou Hamer didn't do that. They were substantive. We know that race is a legitimate issue, that it's been used in America to to discriminate against people for too long. And it's still going on. Race matters. But identity shouldn't be used for cover or protection when you simply don't have a good answer. Right. So, Michael, if you ask me a legitimate question and instead of answering it with a, a, a good answer, I say, well, I'm a black man and I deserve to be heard, then shame on me. Right. Because my grandparents, I know they fought for access. They fought hard and sacrificed for representation and a fair hearing. And the and campaign continues in that fight and within that legacy. But the struggle wasn't so that I could avoid defending half cock strategies or ill conceived policy. Right. The, the struggle wasn't about me being able to use their sacrifices as an excuse to avoid critique and examination. And in this instance, that's what Talib did. Now, that defense might work on Twitter. But I hope that defense never works, even if it's in my best interest. I hope that that defense never works outside of Twitter. Uh, And I'm not saying that her cause is wrong. I've heard her answer questions in a better way. But that particular response was poor. Now, someone might say, why do I care? Why am I calling this out? I'm not calling this out to protect Pelosi, to to protect the establishment or anybody else. I'm calling this out to protect people at the border and all, all the things that are going on and all the people that need legitimate strategies and defenses to make needed change. Don't use something like race to defend an issue you just haven't thought through all the way or that you don't you know that you don't have a good response to. And and I don't I don't really care what your identity is. You've been voted in to represent people and to come up with strategies and policies that you can articulate and defend on the merits. And if you can't do that, then you've done the people a disservice. And race is not a defense to that. So I, I just wanted to say that because in seeing that response and leaning on race in, in on a serious issue which had nothing to do with that particular response, I thought was unfortunate. And I hope this isn't kind of the posture that we continue to take.
0: And, and right, it's like I would have liked to see her tell the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus who voted for the spending bill, like use that line on. Karen Bass. Use that line on the head of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, who supported the bill. Uh, Use that line on the uh, head of the, the Progressive Caucus, who is also a woman of color. That's why you would uh, vote against the bill. So yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I think what's important is, clearly, there's been a shift like you said, a really effective shift in an expansion of the horizons of political possibility that the squad has helped open up. And, you know, I want to be careful. The four of them voted on this bill. I do think there are significant differences in approach and just the politics of someone like Ayanna Pressley from someone like AOC from someone like to leave. Uh, and so, it, you know, I, I think that they operated as a, as a squad here, they they often present themselves that way, but, but I don't want to sort of lump them all in together in every scenario. But in their work, they've expanded sort of what people think is possible. At some point, though, it gets down to like, okay, if we're going to give you more power, if your caucus, so to speak, is going to expand after 2020, like what will actual governing look like? Or is this just a kind of utopian caucus of objectors, (laughs) you know, uh, kind of like Rand Paul operated in the Senate or Ron Paul operated in the House? four years, just sort of a principled voice that doesn't actually get much done, which has its value. They just have to decide what kind of legacy they're trying to build in their leadership. And the folks in their districts have to decide how long they're willing to keep folks in the house that take principled stands, but maybe aren't able to deliver for their districts the way that others should.
1: In a way that, you know, activists are needed and representatives who govern are needed as well. And when you decide to be an activist in a position of those who govern, it comes with some negatives as well, because people don't necessarily vote you in to be an activist. They vote you in to govern. Now, there are people who take more of an activist stance when they are governing. But those people usually aren't voted into leadership positions and sometimes they don't stay around as long. So we'll see what the people decide. But you certainly when you're in those positions, you have to keep in mind that you do have to govern and that solutions do need to be reached. Because although we might like a back and forth, at some point we need solutions. And if you're not willing to have those more productive solutions, then uh, I think people at some point kind of get sick of it a little bit.
0: Just one last thing, which is at the end of the day, the stand that these four took didn't have any practical outcome. I think, you know, the reason Pelosi did this, as you mentioned earlier, was more just for the political perception. It lent that Democrats weren't unified on this, that there was a lot of friction within the Democratic Party. And one reason Speaker Pelosi might have done that is because of poll numbers like we're going to talk about in the next segment. So let's uh, let's take a quick break. And when we get back, we'll talk about a new Washington Post ABC poll that has some interesting numbers about 2020 and, uh, and about the current occupant uh, of the Oval Office. Uh, this is the Church Politics Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And and Justin, we sent this around uh, when it came out just between us over text. uh, ABC News, Washington Post poll out just on July 7th has President Trump at career high approval rating uh, 44% among all adults, but 47% among registered voters. Now, of course, the poll isn't all good news for the president. Uh, 65% say that he's acted in a way that's unpresidential, with only 28% saying that he's acted in a way that's fitting and proper. And 37% believe that Congress should begin impeachment proceedings, which also shows kind of the, the vice that, that Democrats are in, where you have a majority not wanting impeachment, a strong majority not wanting impeachment but probably majority of Democrats and Democratic primary voters that do want impeachment. Just I have some ideas about why Trump might be reaching a career high approval rating at this point in his presidency. But what's your sort of instinct looking at numbers like
1: this? I think the, the Trump administration should be happy about it. Uh, and as you pointed out, it isn't all good. And so there are several things to be worried about, perhaps more things to be worried about than than, our, than we're, we're good, but relative to where he's been. Right. Relative to where he's been. Yeah. this is strong. Right, the economy right, right. is strong. And many people believe that Trump is responsible for it. When you look at the top issues, yeah. the number one issue among these voters in the same poll was the economy. So for the American people to be right. with you on the economy is very important. So what we see is six out of 10 Americans say still say that he's unpresidential. So it's not like everybody sold on this guy or even that many more people are sold on him. Uh, one fifth of those mm-hmm. people of that group still approve of his overall job performance, which means four fifths do not. Right. So not in a great position. Right. Now, what this comes down to inevitably is what this looks like for the general election. And this is still a ways away. And these numbers can be tough, but he still trails Biden by a wide margin. So Biden is up. Uh, 53 to 43. Now, the other matchups within the Democratic candidates, the other the other folks are only up, uh, I think, two points at most. Uh, so that's going to be interesting right. to look at as well. So I think for Trump, if you can maintain a good economy and people are mostly focused on the economy, that's a big issue. I'd, I'd also mention that the number two issue was health care. The number three uh, issue was immigration. Those people who want to beat Trump would do well to keep those issues in mind. If he's doing well on the economy and you're going to propose a, a proposed policy that's going to really change the economy, then make sure that those changes are going to be very well explained. And if you're going to, you know, if you're going to yeah. if whatever you're doing is going to take funding, you need to explain what that funding is coming from. Also, when it comes to healthcare, when you're talking about this medic, you know, Medicare for all, you have to realize most people do not want their private health care taken away. If those are positions that people are going right. to be taking and they're not going to be explained. You give Trump a, a better and better chance of, of being reelected, but it's it's far from a sure thing.
0: Yeah, it's a critical idea, especially you know to build on the success that Democrats had in the midterms in 2018, where they were largely focused on health care, but not on Medicare for all, but on protecting the Affordable Care Act, making sure that pre existing conditions were uh, continued to be uh, uh, mandated for coverage, to sort of use this moment to intentionally move off of the solid ground that you were on into right. something that is more dicey, right. particularly, you know, a lot of the times what happens is, uh, you know, these, these advocacy groups will come in and, and show democratic campaigns and candidates, you know, their polling on, you know, what they're advocating for. They're like majority of American support. Well, yes, if the debate is held on your terms, right. and if the question is exactly what you what you hope you know the American people will consider it to be, yeah, you could win the debate. Here is the problem: uh, the debate's not held on right. your terms all of the time. Uh, sometimes the debates about whether Medicare for All will strip away private insurance from the marketplace, and if those are the terms, this ABC poll shows that forty nine percent oppose compared to forty three percent support. That's quite a risk to take. The other thing I'd say here, Justin, is this shows that Trump uh, really operates best when he has a clear enemy, mm-hmm. uh, when he has a clear political opponent. You know, Democrats being in the news, uh, the the debates picking up have offered him that. And then the other thing, which I think is what you know, Speaker Pelosi has an eye on to go back to the last segment is. If Democrats are going to run against Trump as sort of uniquely unqualified, sort of uniquely chaotic, and they aren't able to present a model of coherent governance, if they aren't able to present the idea that they're the party of common sense, and if Democratic leadership suggests to the American people if a if a Democrat is elected, it will be just as chaotic, just in another direction as President Trump. Then then that's going to be a real problem when we get to voting. So I think what we see from Speaker Pelosi, I think what we see from some of the 2020 candidates is seeing that sort of deficiency. In what some people want out of the 2020 candidates, which is to use this moment for disruption. If this election is disruption versus disruption, you know, I'm not sure how that shakes out. And I think I think that's a reason why we see these approval ratings going. It's it's no longer in the minds of some voters just Trump's sort of dysfunction on display, as Tim Alberta wrote for. Politico just last week, he wrote, he wrote a long piece about the primary up to this point, And the headline was something along the lines of, uh, Democrats have turned from the coronation of 2016, meaning the primary process was basically just about you know nominating Hillary Clinton to what he called the circus of 2020. And I don't want to be running a circus against Donald Trump. It, well, uh, when we get back after another quick break, we're going to talk specifically about uh, Vice President Biden. He gave a speech in Sumter, South Carolina, apologizing for his earlier remarks about segregationist senders, And we're going to talk through uh, the, the, the politics of that when we get back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And Justin, uh, over the weekend, uh, Vice President Biden kind of went on the offensive. He did a sit down interview with CNN, which, you know, I think they were trying to assert the, the fact that this is someone with gravitas, a former vice president, someone who's presidential, someone who can get up to, you know, prime time sit down, one on one interview with CNN. But that wasn't the only move that they made on Saturday. Biden spoke in Sumter, South Carolina. Uh, kind of a kind of a big speech. It was a table setting speech. They kind of wanted to package together a response and a pre of what they think are going to be incoming attacks on Biden's record on civil rights, uh, more generally sort of his progressive bona fides. Uh, He said specifically regarding his comments about working with segregationist senators, uh, he said, "Now was I now was I wrong a few weeks ago to somehow give the impression to people that I was praising those men who I successfully opposed time and time again? Yes, I was. I regret it. I'm sorry for any of the pain or misconception that I caused anybody. But did that misstep define 50 years of my record for fighting for civil rights and racial justice in this country? I hope not. I don't think so. That just isn't an honest assessment." Of my record, uh, he said uh, elsewhere in the speech. A uh, really interesting line, uh, 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 along the lines of, you know, "My opponents uh, want to talk about uh, the uh, my record as vice president, my time as vice president, as if it was 35 years ago, and they want to talk about what I did in the 1970s as though it happened yesterday." Which, which is a you know an interesting turn, uh, an attempt to really. The focus on his most recent term of public service. Uh, Justin, the the fact is Vice President Biden would not have given this speech at this point if if Senator Harris and Senator Booker and some of the other, uh, just some of the reporting hadn't made an impact. And it's an impact that we're seeing in the polls. Senator Harris has shot up to second place in national polling, according to the Real Clear Politics average. Biden has seen a significant hit, although he's still clear front runner up five plus points on whoever's up on Harris and on Sanders. Clearly, they decided that they needed to try and take some of the reins back on this. Do you think the speech and sort of this whole weekend of activity was effective? Did you think it was authentic? What did you take away from this weekend of activity? Yes, yeah, I, I
1: suppose he had to do it. I don't know that it it really changes a whole lot. Most of the people that know Joe Biden, I don't think many people were convinced that he was somehow a racist or anything like that. I don't know how big of an effect it had, but but you do have to you don't want to leave that loose end there. And so I get what he was trying to do. I thought what Biden said was inartful. I thought his words were inartful, inartful. It's another one of those Biden gaffes that I'm sure his campaign is constantly worried about. It was an unforced error. And he's he's got to find a way to cut those out. Uh, I mean, I don't know that there's any other way to say it. Uh, That said, I had a You know, that conversation came up during, you know, our Fourth of July celebration with, you know, a bunch of 30 something African-Americans and most of them sort of shrugged it off. Even the initial comments. I mean, I don't think it didn't seem like anyone had shed a tear over those comments. I think most people, not all of them who were Biden supporters, understand him. They don't think he was against civil rights. They don't think, you know, he was a racist. And I think they understood the spirit of what he was trying to say. As you know, Atlanta Mayor uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms ended up endorsing him after those comments. And so Mm. I'm sure that didn't hurt him. And again, the, the reaction that you see again on Twitter from certain demographics isn't always an accurate depiction Of the larger population. And unfortunately, it seems like some of these campaign teams and also some of our our political journalists take too much from those particular from what's going on and what they see on Twitter. And and it's really sad. Mm -hmm. And I I would employ, if you want to run for office, if you want to be a journalist, make sure you find ways to be connected to the people. And it may be hard, but be connected to the people. Have a group of folks that you reach out to, whether it's at your barbershop, at your church or whatever, to see what the people are saying. Because if you just go off what's happening on social media, you're not going to get an accurate depiction of what's going on. And we see that happening over and over again. I don't think most people really were hurt about his comments. I do think there were a, a decent amount of people, as we see through the polls, who reacted to Kamala's performance, right? And how well she did in the the, the right. debate. But I don't think most people heard his comments yeah. and were like, oh my, and you know, just freaking out. I'm, I just didn't see that. That hadn't been my sure, experience. Sure, sure. Uh, but what Biden needs to focus on right now, more than anything, is tightening up, making sure that he performs better in the next debate. The other thing I think he needs to do is also decide yeah. if he's going to be a moderate or not or if he'll continue to get pushed hmm. further and further left. Because I think the further left he gets pushed, you really. And I've, I I said this, probably, I said probably more than enough on this uh, the last time we talked about it. But the further left he gets pushed, he re- really removes the reason why most people want to vote for him. Uh, and so he needs to make those decisions. And he make, needs to make sure his next debate performance is a lot better than the first one.
0: Yeah, I think the hope is. Give this speech near the top of the month over Fourth of July weekend. So, you know, I I don't think this speech was meant to reach the most eyeballs and, you know, ears as possible. This is something that I think they want to be able to refer back to when reporters, you know, are, you know, drag this out and and refer to the last debate. They want to be able to refer folks back to the speech so that they could move on to, I, I think, it, you know, setting up for the next debate. I, I, I'm going to be interested to see what kinds of uh, seeds the Biden campaign plants over the next few weeks that we might see some shoots spring up it, it, at, at the debates at the end of the month. And, and I think that was, that was the game plan here. Justin, but we, we don't have too much more to get to, but uh, we do have one more topic and that is, you sent me the story just uh, uh, just over the last 12, 24 hours. So, for those who don't know, Nike was rolling out sneakers that honored the Betsy Ross flag. And apparently, uh, Colin Kaepernick, who appeared in the Nike advertisements, is a, I believe he's, he's still got a Nike deal, I'm assuming, given the fact that he's been featured in their uh, advertisements. Colin Kaepernick felt like it was objectionable symbolism that the Betsy Ross flag represented an era of slavery uh, in in this country, uh, and he, he didn't like the sneaker. So Nike... You know, there was a bit of backlash on on that. Nike said that they were backing out of the sneaker, even though it had already shipped. But, Justin, why don't you break down this Denver Post article that suggests that, you know, uh, something more is going on here, even if it's not
1: necessarily nefarious? Yeah. So this Denver Post article basically pointed out that once this decision was made, stocks for Nike have gone up about two percent. Uh, Since they made that decision, making the company about three billion dollars, I don't know that there's enough information to say that they did it for that reason. Uh, But there's certainly an insinuation that it certainly didn't hurt them. Right. And so what I want to do and the reason I I found the article to be interesting is I just want to warn people to be cautious when jumping into these controversies that tend at the end of the day to benefit these, you know, some of these larger corporations financially. Uh, we've seen Netflix jump into the mm. policy debate when it comes to abortion and all these things. And I think it's important for people to realize that these companies, when they align with certain issues, it can actually help their brand. Right. So we know that social justice is trending right. and generally that is a good thing. But I'm not convinced that the motives of these corporations are always necessarily pure. Um, and, and I think that could cause trouble at the end of the day. So in this story, businessman Kevin O'Leary said what I what I'm learning about Nike is that they know how to take controversy and blow it up into advertising. The reason that I'm saying what I say is that corporations have stockholders uh, who they owe a fiduciary duty to be as profitable as possible. Unless moves like this don't hurt the bottom line or help the bottom line, they're not really going to stick their necks out and lose money. And so I'm not telling you how to think about this, but when you see something like this and when you see, you know, folks gaining three billion dollars from taking a certain social justice stance, just know that there may be more than meets the eye. All right. And don't maybe not be so quick right. to jump on a bandwagon to say, hey, this is great or whatever. Well, there may be other incentives for them to do this. I I prefer that large corporations stay out of these conversations because I just don't think that their incentives and the way that they work are beneficial to very serious social issues. And right. usually, with these you know larger companies, there's a lot of things you could point out that say, "Well, if you really cared about social justice, we could look at some of you know your policies and how you're treating people in other right. countries, and you could do a better job on that." And sometimes they very right. quickly get a, a cheap boost in brand recognition or or actually uh, brand favorability by jumping on this, these issues when they haven't fixed other issues. That may hurt their bottom line, but but would have a bigger impact on people who work for them and people who uh, use their products. So just watch out. Sometimes this mix between corporate money and social justice can be a very dubious, uh, 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 dubious issue. And so just 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 be just be careful and and watch uh, what goes on here, because it's not always uh, just what you see uh, on paper. Yeah, it's always good, always good to be aware. Uh, of you
0: know what could be happening behind the scenes, what the incentive structures uh, uh, might lead uh, companies and politicians and activists. And yes, even uh, even us as citizens, what, what, what those incentive structures might lead us to do. That's what, what we try to do here on the podcast uh, every week for you. Uh, and so good uh, to be with you. Uh, Justin, any closing uh, words for, for this week?
1: Not a whole lot. Uh, just stay vigilant. Uh, s- stay on what's happening at the border. You know, keep an eye out for that. And, and as much as you can, incentivize people through who you retweet and, and everything else to to be constructive about that, because people are suffering and we can be loud and we can be, you know, uh, energetic. But what are we getting done and are we doing what's best for those people down there? Because that's what we should be concerned about.
0: All right, Justin, that's a good closing word. I think we've come. To the end of the you road. Go. Oh yeah, there we you got go. it. All right, <laughs> all right. We'll close. <laughs> we'll, we'll close with that, folks. This is the Church Politics podcast. I'm Michael Ware with Justin Gibney. Been uh, so great to be with you. Uh, please leave a review of the podcast on iTunes. It would help us out, and we'll see you next week. Have a blessed week. Take care
1: the ways of runaway slaves i'm brave i'm unchained douglas with a fade
0: this episode was brought to you in part by the table podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of god and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life find it on your podcast app for videos and more visit dts.edu/podcast